All right, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the final chapter of Genesis. We've made it. Genesis chapter 50. And we're going to read and look at the entire chapter. And the title of today's Bible study is God Meant It for Good. We'll be reading the entire chapter, but most of our time is going to be spent in verses 15 to 21. So if you're able, please stand with me as we read God's word together. Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required of it for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh saying, my father made me swear saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. And only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. And it was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the flesh, threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. And therefore, the place was named Abel Mizram, and it is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. And so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died, saying to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? 
as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, and the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Please be seated. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 is sometimes referred to as Joseph's Romans 8, 28. Let me read to you verse 20 again. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. As we had studied the life of Joseph, he was not prepared to acknowledge God's providence when he was sold to slavery. In fact, the brothers recounted that as Joseph was being pulled away by the Ishmaelites sent to to Egypt, how distressed his brother was. We're not surprised by this, right? I mean, when you and I go through trials and tribulation, in the midst of our troubles, we can't clearly see God's providence. The the hymnist William Cowper's, he aptly penned, God moves in a mysterious way. And it's mysterious, isn't it? When we're sick, when there's wars, rumors of wars, when there's pain, when there's hurt, injustice, where is God? Can God really mean all of this for good? But it is now here 30 years later that Joseph is prepared to utter these precious words, God meant it for good. And he gives us here a monumental testimony to God's hand of providence. So we're gonna divide the chapter into three sections. The first 14 verses, we're gonna just briefly cover Jacob's burial we'll spend the bulk of our time in the second section looking at God's good purposes. And then finally, we'll read about Joseph's death. So if you have your Bible still with you, back to Genesis chapter 50, looking at the start of the chapter in verse one, you'll notice here that when Jacob died, that was recounted in the previous chapter, in verse one, we see that it's Joseph that falls and he weeps and he kisses. It's interesting that the writer doesn't recount that the other brothers 
had that similar outburst of emotion. I think maybe part of it is that Joseph's brothers were preoccupied with other concerns. So Joseph pours out in emotion. He falls, he weeps, he kisses. And then in verse 2, he commands the Egyptian physicians to embalm his father. And we see here that this process takes 40 days. And then notice in verse 3, where the text says that all the Egyptians wept for Jacob for 70 days. I mean, think with me for a moment. When someone great dies, perhaps a head of state or someone noble, perhaps even a monarch, the country here nowadays, we might you know, have a moment of silence or we might pause for a few days maybe even a week, not even a month, but 70 days for a foreigner, for a shepherd, all the Egyptians. Jacob was embalmed 40 days. The Egyptians weep for 70 days. And then after the weeping, the time of mourning, Joseph goes to Pharaoh and he asks Pharaoh for permission to bury his father in the land of Canaan. And of course, we see here that Pharaoh enthusiastically obliges. And if you look at verse 7, look at all the attendants that come for this burial. I think it's staggering. Verse 7, so Joseph went to bury up to bury his father, and with him went up, first of all, all the servants of Pharaoh. So Joseph, vicier of Egypt, second in charge, I'm going to assume that all the servants of Pharaoh are probably all the people that he worked with in the government. And so everyone came. This isn't just a few miles walk. This is several days' journey to Canaan to the caves of Machpelah. Second, all the elders of Pharaoh's household came. So the most important people in the family and household of the king of Egypt also go. Continuing in in verse 7, all the elders of the land of Egypt come. Can you imagine that? Every prominent Egyptian in the country came out to witness the burial of Jacob. And we see here also Joseph's household, so Joseph's entire family and household, all of Joseph's brothers, and then the father, Jacob's household, they all were there. In fact, the only ones who didn't go, we read in verse 8, are the children. So the kids didn't come. I guess they must have had babysitters. So the kids. (laughs) And then interesting, there's the mention of the flocks and the herd. That pretty much shows you that this entourage was something temporary. They're not bringing, they're not going to settle back to Canaan. In fact, this may have been an opportune time. Joseph may have even could have asked, perhaps, to Pharaoh, can we all go back to Canaan? The famine's over. Everything's going great. This is my home. But that's not part of God's plan. There's no kids that come no flocks, no herds. This is something temporary to honor Jacob. And notice how they travel in verse 9. They travel by chariots and horses. 
You remember when we were studying about you know, bringing wagons to help with the move, uh, to bring chariots and, and horsemen. This was like bringing the entire military. Uh, this is, it's not even bringing helicopters. These are bringing, you know, aircrafts, maybe even an aircraft carrier. You're bringing the most powerful resources of your military. And then if you go to verse 10, when they get there, it says they lamented there uh, with very great and grievous lamentation, and they mourned for another seven days. So they had to bring enough food, enough resources for all the people, tents. There weren't hotels there for seven days. This is a site that I don't think anyone in Palestine and in Canaan had ever seen before. Because look at the reaction in verse 11. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, they see this, what do they say? They say, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians, the superpower of the ancient Near East, and all the neighboring inhabitants. They're witnessing this. They're in awe. What a grievous mourning that the Egyptians are showing. And we look here in verse 12 and 13, all of Jacob's sons participated in this burial. His sons carried him and they buried him in the field at Machpelah. You may remember that Abraham, when Sarah died, Abraham didn't have any possession of his own in Canaan. God had promised him Canaan. Back in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, even Genesis 22, when he offered Isaac to, to God in Mount Moriah. But at that point, he still didn't have any land. It wasn't until Genesis chapter 23, when Sarah dies, and Abraham wants to bury his wife. And so he goes to the neighbors and he says, I just want to buy a plot of land to bury my wife. And there was a Hittite that came up to him and says, you know, you are such an honored neighbor. Uh, you pick out wherever you want. And so, so Abraham picks these caves in the field of Machpelah. And the Hittite says, you know what? I mean, it's yours. But Abraham made it uh, clear that he was going to pay, right, shekels or pieces of silver for that land. So that's clear that, that nothing had been given to him by the Canaanites, that this was all given to him by God. And that's all Abraham had. And so Jacob, now Joseph and the sons, they're looking at the future promise. They're going to be sojourners here in Egypt. But that is the place. That is the remnant. That's where it starts. And so that's where they all go, to these caves at Machpelah, to bury their father. In verse 14, they buried him, and they all returned back to Egypt. No one stayed in Canaan. So now we come to the second important section, where we look at God's good purposes. So looking at the text in verse 15, you see what the brothers must have been preoccupied with. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us 
and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. The implication here is that Joseph did not retaliate. He did not seek vengeance, but it was because his father was still alive. Once Jacob is dead, the brothers are fearing that Joseph can now exact justice and punish his brothers given his exalted, powerful position as vicier in Egypt. And there is precedent for this fear. You remembered when Jacob had stolen the birthright of Esau. You remember what Esau said, right? Esau said, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. And so the brothers are fearing that Joseph did not forgive them, and they're fearful of Joseph's impending retaliation. Let me just pause to say that one or two marks of unforgiveness. If you were to ask the question, how do you know a person's forgiven? Well, the first mark is that there will be hatred. There will be evil thoughts towards the other person. If you don't forgive, you will harbor animosity towards the individual that you have not forgiven. Because look at what Joseph's, Joseph's brothers said. They said that they're fearful that Joseph still hates them. And then the second, the second mark of unforgiveness is that you want to still seek some sort of compensation, some sort of payback. You still want something more. You want punishment. You want something else still to be done by the offending party. So when there's unforgiveness, there remains hatred, there remains a desire for compensation. And so what do the brothers do next? So first, we see the brothers' fear. Second, look at the brothers' confession. Back in Genesis chapter 45, we had studied that Joseph had, in fact, forgiven his brothers. We had looked at Joseph's portrait of forgiveness in Genesis 45, but it seems here that the brothers weren't convinced. And back in Genesis chapter 45, if you recall, there was no explicit confession that was given, that was expressed by Joseph's brothers. It was Joseph who disclosed that they had sinned. He says, I am Joseph, the one you sold to slavery. But the brothers were speechless. They, they were perhaps in shock but they didn't say anything. It's not until here that we see the brothers actually verbally confess their sin. And they do it in a really awkward way. I'm not sure if it's true, but I think they likely falsified this message that their father had given them to give to Joseph. I think that if Jacob really wanted Joseph to make sure that he forgives his brothers, Jacob probably would have told Joseph privately. So what the brothers are claiming is they're trying to feign that their father has told them to give Joseph the command to please forgive us. But look at what they say 
So in verse 16, they send a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And they continue. They say, now Joseph, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. We see here that the brothers are fearful because they have not sensed or they have not trusted that Joseph had truly forgiven them. And now in this awkward, almost deceiving way, but they man up and they confess their sin to Joseph. And look at Joseph's response in verse 17. First, we see here that, that Joseph weeps. He breaks down and he cries. There's so much as to why he would be crying at this point. I mean, first, you would think that he was probably hurt. His brothers distrusted him. They did not believe in his character that he had the capacity to forgive unconditionally. I think Joseph was also just sad. He realized that his brothers were still carrying the weight of their sin. I think Joseph was moved. He, he was touched because this is the first time he sees his brothers confessing their sin to him. And then fourthly, it shows that Joseph was empathetic, sympathetic, because he sees that his brothers were still living in fear. And so the first thing he does is he weeps. But second, what does he do? He reassures his brothers and he says, do not fear. Do not fear. Two of the most important words, two of the most common words that our forgiving God utters to us is fear not. Isaiah, basically giving the words of God, God says, fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your redeemer is the holy one in Israel. In chapter 43, Isaiah continues, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Jeremiah follows the same theme. He writes, fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, declares Yahweh. For behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. And if you jump to the New Testament, when the promised Messiah is about to come, what did the angels tell the shepherds in Luke chapter 2? They said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. John in 1 John summarizes this perfectly. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, John writes, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is so also, so we are in this world, 
There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so what John is saying is that, Christian, we don't need to fear of the day of judgment. As believers, we are perfected in love, and we don't face final punishment. And so as God reassures us, whom he has forgiven, fear not, Joseph goes to his brothers and he says, you are forgiven, do not fear. So Joseph weeps, he reassures his brothers, do not fear, and then he gives two attributes to God. And the first attribute he declares is that Joseph declares God's authority, God's authority and sovereignty. Look back at the text here. It says, Joseph says, do not fear for am I in the place of God? So what Joseph is telling his brothers is that I am not God. I am not in the place of God. There is only one being, one person who is in that place, and that is God. God has authority. God is sovereign. God is in charge. God is judge, but not me. Am I in the place of God? Any authority that Joseph had, he knew, was delegated to him by the God who had sovereign authority. It's God that judges the wicked. He may judge the wicked directly. He may delegate it to government, but it is God who is judged. God ordains government. God ordains all power. There is only one who has sovereign authority. It's not the president. It's not Pharaoh. No earthly king. The sovereign one is God. So Joseph declares God's authority and sovereignty but second, and here's verse 20, Joseph declares God's providence. Once again, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Think with me. Joseph was hated by his brothers. He was sold to slavery. He's riding on the backs of the Ishmaelite traders heading, forlorn from his brothers, his family, into a strange new country, new language, new culture, new, new everything. I don't think he would have been able to say at that time that God could mean it for good. He was in Potter's first house for a number of years. And just when things were going well, because of his integrity, because he wanted to follow God's precepts, he gets falsely accused and he gets thrown in prison. I think if you were to ask Joseph, how do you feel right now? All he can think of is, I want out of this. What, what's going on? Where is God? Even when what might have been a friend to him, that chief cupbearer, when he pleads with the chief cupbearer, remember me, think of me, give me hesed, speak kindly to me, 
think kindly to me, the cupbearer forgets, and he is left stranded in prison. Where is God? But it's here in verse 20 of Genesis chapter 50 that Joseph was given the sight to see glimpses of God's purposes. And look what he says. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. There's no doubt about it. It's clear to everyone. He said back in chapter 45 that you, brothers, you sold me, but God sent me. And here he's telling his brothers, we can rejoice. God, not only is, does he have his hand of providence, but he has graciously shown us glimpses of that providence, that good purpose that he had. So let me repeat what we think about when we use the words God's providence. So all of us, as we look at scripture, we trust that God is omnipotent, that he has all power. He can do anything, but we don't stop there. God is not only omnipotent, we learn here that he is sovereign. He has all authority. He's in charge. He's not one who's all powerful like a genie that's stuck in a bottle or not even stuck, just sitting there idly. He is ruler. He has authority over all his creation. He is omnipotent and he is sovereign. But it doesn't stop there, does it? God is also a God of providence. And providence is sovereignty with a purpose. And it's sovereignty with a good purpose, with a perfect purpose. And it's perfectly good for him, which results in goodness for us. That's why Paul explains that God works all things together for his good, and that good becomes our good. You know, there's another verse that I think is precious. It's Psalm chapter, four, Psalm chapter 84, verse 11. I'll just read it to all of us. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. Listen to this. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Do you understand what this means, that we have a God who is a God of providence? There is never a plan B. There is always a plan A. And that plan A is perfectly good. And it is reality for us that whatever trial you are about to face, whatever trial you're facing right now, whatever you're going to face in the future, it's going to be mysterious. God does not promise that he's going to reveal his answers. But you can and I can trust that it is good. And let me just make it clear. 
None of us in this room is missing out on anything. You may think you're missing out that you don't have a spouse right now. You may think you're missing out because you don't have more children or you have no children. You may be missing out that if your spouse is not following the Lord, that your marriage is not where it wants to be, that your life, that your career, that this world is crumbling and falling apart. But you and I are not missing out because we have a God who is sovereign and he's sovereign with a good purpose. Jesus echoes this truth. In John chapter 9, Jesus was walking and he passes by and it reads, Jesus, he saw a man born blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it is not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the words of God might be displayed in him. You know, during the time of Jesus, if you were born blind, you had no hope. I mean, in our modern age, we've got Braille, we've got technology, that we can partly overcome some of our uh, deficiencies or our inabilities or loss of abilities but not here in the time of Christ. If you were born blind, you had no capacity to do anything. And imagine for a handful of you that might have children with special needs, how difficult that is. From from birth, you don't know what the future holds and you're living a life trying to care and love for your child who you know will remain in need for the rest of his or her life. That's what these parents felt. That's what this man felt who was born blind. They must have had people point at them and said, someone in your family must have sinned. A God who is fair, a God who is loving and good would never let this happen. But what did Jesus say to his disciples? that the works of God might be displayed in him. And if you read John chapter 9, this man gives one of the most glorious testimonies of the person of Jesus Christ. Well, finally, we see here that Joseph, in his response, he displays, he outpours his forgiveness. Look in verse 21. So he says to his brothers, do not fear. And look what he says. Number one, I will provide for you and your little ones. So first, he gives provision for his brothers and their children. Second, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them. He comforted his brothers And thirdly, he spoke kindly to them. Kindness. Hatred, seeking payback, that's unforgiveness. What is forgiveness? Provision, comfort, kindness. Well, let's look at Joseph's death in this final 
five verses here. We see here in verse 22, Joseph lives for 110 years. He does see not just his children, his grandchildren, but his great-grandchildren. Notice in this final scene that he appears to die before many of his brothers. So he doesn't outlive many of his older brothers. And let me just read Joseph's final words. He tells his brothers in verse 24, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he repeats it a second time. God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. And then Joseph dies. His brothers embalm him and he is put in a box, in a coffin in Egypt. Perhaps I'm using too much of my imagination, but I don't think Joseph is buried here. Many times when people die and you put them in the coffin, you don't just leave it at church, bring it back to your house. A coffin in our modern age is meant to be buried. But Joseph is different. Embalmed, placed in a box, visible for people to see. For his family, for future generations. And can you imagine if the great grandkids are running around and they were to ask their mom and dad, what is this? The parents can tell the kids, this is your great grandfather, Joseph. And one day, God is going to help us to carry this box back to where he promised us the land of Canaan. Even in Joseph's death, he points his family, even the entire nation of Egypt, to the future promises of God. Think with me the final words of both Jacob and Joseph. Their testimony was all about the future promise of God. And they didn't understand it completely. But the ultimate promise was the coming Messiah. They were pointing their family to Messiah. We're different because we are 2,000 years later after the first advent. But that's what our life should be too, isn't it? That every breath that we take, our life, and even our death, that somehow God will use us as a signpost to Christ. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The greatest evil in all human history was the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in utter amazement, God uses this atrocity to bring salvation to us, his elect. And he used man's worst evil to bring the greatest good. Father, we thank you so much for being a God of mercy. None of us in this room, not even Joseph and his entire family, the patriarchs, deserve your unconditional act of mercy 
and grace when you sent your son to, to live the life that we couldn't live and to die the death that we deserve. Father, I pray that maybe there are some of us in this room that have not truly embraced this gift of salvation that only comes from your son. And I pray that perhaps today or soon that through your spirit, you will reveal this marvelous truth and call the lost. Father, I thank you again for giving us this time again to open up your word. And Father, again, it is our prayer that this does not stay in our minds, but it penetrates into our hearts and works out to our will and to our hands. We pray that we'll leave here wanting to be more conformed to your son and that we have the capacity to love and forgive and that we can cling to the truth that you mean everything for good so that whatever we're facing, we can have hope, that we can take comfort, joy, that whatever we're facing, you're in control and your purposes are good. We thank you again for this day of worship. In your son's name that we pray, amen.